Now, let's be honest, this is uh, one of the chapters of the Bible people find difficult to understand. Um, My problem with the Bible is is less the passages I find difficult to understand, and there are a lot of them. It's more the passages I find difficult to accept. And I think Romans 9, we struggle with more because we find it difficult to accept. And the two reasons we find it difficult to accept is it, it drives a wedge into our culture. Because Romans 9 says to us all, you're not good and you're not in control. You're not good and you're not in control. But we've all been brought up after something called the Enlightenment to believe that human beings are in control. Our minds are are the biggest source of knowledge in the universe. And basically, we're good. I mean, kids, that's what you're taught at school. Work hard, do your homework, get the exams, and you'll turn out a good person. The problem is Romans 9 says you don't need to try and be a good person. You need to receive mercy from God. And that's, that's why we find it, it tough. Uh, actually, you don't really need the Bible to tell you that you're not good and not in control. What you need to do is get into a car without air conditioning and try and drive around the M25 with three small children in the back on a hot sunny day. You'll soon discover you're not good, nor are you in control. Now, Romans so far has faced us with a, a particular view of humanity. Did you remember what it said back in Romans 3, verse 10 to 12? As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's what God says about the human race. But but it also has told us, Romans, what God's attitude to us is. Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. God loves people who aren't good. He he sends his son for them. So that those who now have faith, who trust in Jesus, well, this is what we have according to Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or, Or verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for all, us all, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? All those verses I just read. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then let me ask you, if you're a Christian person here today, did you believe those things? Did you believe that basically all humanity has rejected God and therefore is by nature not good but bad? That there is a God who loves humanity so much that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross to deal with that rebellion? And that those who trust in him are bound to his love by Jesus forever and cannot be separated from it? Because if you believe that for yourself... I guess you have the same sort of reaction as the Apostle Paul does. Because the Apostle Paul's reaction is, therefore, I long that, that, that my people would know this. And that's what he says in chapter 9, verse 1, isn't it? His heart is filled with anguish and sorrow but because his race, his nation, the nation of Israel, they haven't accepted Jesus, the, the one in whom you find God's love. He says, I'd even go to hell. I, I'd be cursed. If that would mean they'd come to trust in Jesus. I guess if you're a Christian here today, 
and you have people who love, who, who don't know Jesus, you'd, you'd echo some of those sentiments of the Apostle Paul. You'd think, yeah, I'd do anything for, for them to be saved, to, to know Christ. But the, the issue's bigger for Paul because, of course, the, the nation of Israel, they're God's special people in the Old Testament. They, they've received a whole load of privileges. So Paul says in verse 4, theirs is the adoption to sonship. God had said of Israel, you are my son. Theirs is the divine glory. God had dwelt amongst Israel as a glorious presence. He'd made covenant promises to Israel. He'd given them his law. Uh, They had his temple where they could go and worship him. Uh, They had Abraham and Isaac and, and the other forefathers whom God had done business with. They were descended from them. And even more than that, Jesus, the Messiah, he was a Jew. He was born into the people of Israel. So they've had these privileges, and yet yet they still don't trust in Jesus. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not a Jew. Um, I don't have any relatives who are Jews. Why why is that important for me? Why do we need to look at Romans 9? Well, you see, if God's made these promises to Israel, and they've rejected the one who fulfills them all, Jesus... Here's the issue. If God's promises to them don't appear to have worked, how can we trust God's promises to us? But because in the end, God's promises are attached to his character. And character matters, doesn't it? I mean, you know at school, if, uh, if someone lies to you, or at work, if someone lies to you, it's, it's just very hard to trust them again. You know, if they, if they say, oh, oh you know, I, I've got the, the best new Xbox, you go to their house and they're still playing on a... Nintendo 360 from 1999, you did, well, they're just, you know, they're just a bit of a liar. Well, if, if God's promises can't be trusted, if he can't pull off what he says, well, that's very serious. How can we know that his promises to us are trustworthy? And that's why Paul, in Romans 9, makes it very clear that God is good for his word. We're going to see that, that God is good And he's in control. Here's the first question Paul really asks. It's, has God's word failed? Uh, Look down with me uh, at uh, verse 6 of chapter 9. This is the statement Paul makes, verse 6, chapter 9. It's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Hmm. Slightly strange phrase, isn't it? But, but what it means is, not all the people who are born into that nation are part of God's family. And Paul goes on to, to illustrate that. He says, you remember, you remember Abraham? Well, Abraham and Sarah, they couldn't have, have a baby, and God promised them a son, Isaac. Isaac was born because of a promise, that that was who received God's promise. Isaac, not Ishmael his other son, not born of Sarah. Now, God has always brought people into his family by his promise. And more than that, God chooses who he gives his promise to. Because when Isaac came to have children, Rebecca, his wife, she was going to have twins. And look what happened with Rebecca's twins. Look down at verse 11 of chapter 9. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, 
she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Do you see what happened? Before Rebecca even had the babies, God said, I choose to put my promise on Jacob and not on Esau. I don't, don't get worried about that language of Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That's not hated like we think about hated. It's just the way the Bible says that God chose to put his love upon Jacob, but he didn't put his promised love upon Esau. And why did he do that? Well, if you read the story, Esau's a sort of big, red-haired, hairy, rugby-playing type, outdoors lad. Jacob's a bit of a sort of smoothie, stay-at-home mummy's boy who, who likes doing housework. And actually, neither of them come off very well in the book of Genesis. You don't particularly think either of them are worthy of God's love. But, but God chooses Jacob. And you see, before they'd done anything good or bad, before they were even born, neither deserve God's love, but God sets his love and his promises onto Jacob. And that's the way God works in history. He always chooses to give people his promises because he chooses to give them his promises. It's nothing about them. It's not that they're particularly good people. It's not that they're particularly intelligent people. It's not even that they've managed to believe and have faith. Do you see this is before they're even born? That's what God chooses to do. We call this the doctrine of election. And can I tell you it's fantastic news? It's fantastic news for you today because it means you cannot be too bad to be chosen by God. There is no one beyond the love of God because God's love is set on people for no reason to do with them. You can't be not clever enough to be chosen by God because it's not about your understanding. You, you can't be too weak to be part of God's people because it's all about him setting his love on you. And if we read through the Bible, the Old Testament time and time again shows us that. You have Jacob, as we saw. His name really means liar. Uh, later on, we have King David. He goes off with a, another man's wife and then has the man murdered. All the way through the Old Testament, we find people who God sets his love on, who we never invite to church. But he loves them all the same. See, God's word hasn't failed. He always chooses who he sets his promises and his love on. Now, you might be thinking, well, how's that fair? I mean, how is that just? Why do some people get chosen and not others? And you know what? The Apostle Paul's one step ahead of us. Have a look at uh, verse 14 with me. Here's verse 14 of Romans chapter 9. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. And he says, just think back to Moses' day. Uh, Paul uses lots of examples from the Old Testament in this section. In fact, for those who like a bit of Bible trivia, one-third of Paul's Old Testament quotes in the whole New Testament are in Romans 9 to 11. And he says, think back to Moses' day. Did you remember what happened with Moses? Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, God saves because of his mercy, and no one deserves it. 
This is a quote from the book of Exodus, chapter 33. You might remember the Exodus. God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt, and he takes them through the desert to a mountain, Sinai, and he gives Moses the law, Ten Commandments at Sinai. The problem is, while Moses is up the mountain getting the commandments, the people are down the bottom of the mountain making a golden calf and worshipping it. They're saying, well done, golden cow, you're the God that brought us out of Egypt. Now, you don't have to know the Old Testament very well to see this is a problem. They're also worshipping with what the Bible calls revelry. Let the reader understand. Yeah, it's quite a party going on down at the bottom of the mountain. Moses comes down. And God says that they all deserve his justice. There's no one there who is innocent. They deserve to die, the lot of them, for the way that they've treated God. And Moses begs with God and says, no, have mercy upon your people for for the sake of your name. And God says, okay, I'm going to be faithful to them, even though they're unfaithful to me. And Moses says, "Let let me see your glory. Now, Glory is one of those Bible words we we struggle with. What does it mean for Moses to see God's glory? Say you did a a fantastic presentation at work or at school. Uh, You'd uh, worked hard on your PowerPoint and you delivered your presentation very well. And your boss or your teacher said, look, I, I loved your ideas. They were great. I thought you communicated them really well. Your presentation was superb. You are receiving the right glory for who you are and what you've done. Your boss or your teacher is giving you glory. And so what Moses says is, let me see, God, who you are and what you've done, what you're like, that I can trust you. And God passes before Moses. And what does he say? He says, what we have here in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. What is God's glory? What is it that tells us who he is and what he does? He is the God who has mercy, and he's the God who has compassion on people who don't deserve it on people who deserve his right judgment. But he has mercy on who he has mercy, and he has compassion on who he has compassion. It's up to him to choose who he has mercy and compassion on. You see, imagine that we all here, all of us, had um, taken money out of the church offering. All of you on the way in, you know, it took some time to get in. You've all been pilfering the church offering, stealing as you came in. You're all guilty, all of you. Yeah, even I'd taken money. Well, I do, but no, anyway. The, uh, <laughs> that's where I get paid. Okay, we'd all taken money out of the church offering. We're all guilty. What do we all deserve? We all deserve justice. We all deserve to be punished. Now, if the punishment was, say, you have to pay a five-pound fine, and I say to you, look, um, I've got 25 quid here, I'm going to pay a five-pound fine for, uh, you know, some of the people. Uh, Andy over there doesn't know which Andy it is, and obviously, you know, Kev and uh, Eleanor, you know, and um, I'll pay for Nina um, and uh, Karen. Okay, I've run out of money. Those five people now have received mercy. They, they don't get punished. But that that's, doesn't mean that's unfair on the rest of you. You all are guilty. You all deserve to be punished. I've just chosen to show mercy to some people. And that's what God does. Everyone deserves his justice. But in love, he sends his son, and he shows mercy upon whom he has mercy and compassion upon whom he has compassion. Paul uses the example of Pharaoh as an example. Do you remember Pharaoh? He was the ruler of Moses' day. 
uh, and he rejected God. He hardened his heart against God. Uh, Look what Paul says in verse 16. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, Pharaoh was the the most powerful man of his day. He he ruled the greatest kingdom of his time. Nations were invaded because of him. The Israelites were in slavery because of him. But God says, I'm in control, not Pharaoh. Uh, The reason that I raised Pharaoh up was that people might see that I am a merciful and compassionate God who rescues my people. Uh, Let me put it to you this way. Do you think that that it took God 10 goes to rescue his people from Egypt? 10 attempts. You know, sometimes we teach the plagues like, so so, so it's God's in heaven, he's going, and what? Well, uh, turn everything to blood, all that water to blood. Oh, oh, bother, that didn't work. Um, Let's try some frogs. No, no, it's not working either. Gnats, let's go through some gnats. And he has to work through 10 plagues until finally he comes up with one that works. Yes, the Passover, that'll get them, death of the firstborn. Do you think it takes God ten goes? No. This is what God said to Moses before any plagues had been announced to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let people go Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Do you see? God is in control. Pharaoh is there so that God can demonstrate his power and his compassion as he rescues his people from Israel. He has mercy on who is mercy. And he is compassion on who he is compassion. God's hardening is very different from his choosing to have mercy on someone. You see, when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, he gives Pharaoh basically what he wants. Pharaoh's rejecting God. God says, okay, mate, I'm going to harden you in your rejection. But when God has mercy on someone, when he sets his love upon their heart, he changes that person. He takes their heart from one that rejects him and turns it into one that accepts him. He takes their heart from one that by nature hates him and turns it into a heart that that loves him. And that's great news again. Do you know why? Look at verse 16 again of Romans 9. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. You see, you might be sitting here today and thinking, you know what, I'm just not a very good Christian. I try hard. But compared to the person on the end of the row, I'm just, I'm just not doing enough for Jesus. It does not depend on human effort. It doesn't depend. It depends on God's mercy. And if God has set his love on mercy on you, if, you, if you're trusting in Jesus, however weak and feeble that trust is, well, then nothing can separate you from God's love. You see, Paul says, is it unjust? No. God has mercy on who he is mercy and compassion on who he is compassion. And if God has had mercy on you, well, it's not because of anything you've done. It's out of his great love for you. Well, you, you might be then thinking, okay, well, why does God still blame us then? 
I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm not a Christian. Why is that my fault? Obviously, God's just not had mercy on me. Well, Paul again anticipates your question. Uh, have a look at verse 19 with me. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? And, and Paul responds, and, and effectively he says, look, God is the creator and the world is to show his glory. God's the creator and the world's to show his glory. Look at what he says in verse 20. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Now, um, it's a pretty simple point, isn't it? God created all things. We are part of the creation. He, He gives a little illustration in verse 21. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Now, I was quite good at pottery at school. It was the only actually art form I had any talent in whatsoever. Though it has to be said that the average 13-year-old boy, armed with a lump of clay, will have an irresistible urge to throw it at someone else in the classroom. But compared to God, well, I can't make anything. Did, did, um, Did you put together the Himalayas? Did you outline the the edge of the oceans? Did you sustain 7.7 billion people by the power of your will? Were were you and I there when the world began and will we be there when it it ends? No. We're we're creatures and he's the creator. We're, We're merely clay in the hands of our loving creator. And And it would be slightly odd and totally unrealistic if, if, for instance, uh, a teapot turned around to someone like Josiah Wedgwood and said, you know what, mate, I'd rather be a plate. No, it's a creation. He's the creator. He has the right to do with it what he wants. But but actually, as God forms the world and, and uses people for his glory, he still does that as the compassionate and merciful God. It's not that we're robots. It's not that we don't have real wills and make real decisions. I mean, for instance, you're thinking about God now. You're weighing up whether you believe this or not. It's not that you're sitting there going, God is a God of mercy and compassion. I can believe nothing else because he is telling me. Your mind is reasoning, aren't you? You're thinking about the word of God. You're working it out. You have a will. But it's that God works his will through our wills. He is in control, but he is good. And Paul points that out in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 9. Look down at 22. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Remember, we are bad and we're not in control. And verse 22 says, what if God, though the whole world deserves his wrath, though though the whole world has rejected him, every human being, since Adam and Eve, has, has deserved God's righteous anger, it wasn't complicated, was it? Do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, you will surely die. Do you know what should have happened if Adam and Eve received justice? Genesis 3 Verse 8, they died. End of Bible. End of humanity. 
But God in patience bore with humanity. He stuck with people who in the end rejected and hated him. Even though they would receive in time his righteous anger. So that according to verse 23, those who receive his mercy can see the glory of God. That he is gracious and compassionate and that he saves people. Now that's what Paul is saying. Oh, we deserve his wrath, but but as people who receive his mercy, we can see that he is the one who has loved us, not because of who we are, but despite who we are. And there's actually a difference between verse 22 and 23. Do you see in verse 22, it's they're prepared for destruction, but but not prepared for destruction by God. They're, They're people who've rejected God. That is why they're destroyed. Whereas in verse 23, he prepared in advance for glory. Those whom he chooses to save before the creation of the world, he has chosen to set his love upon them. And Paul goes on in verses 25 to 29 to show by quoting the Old Testament, he always meant that to be people from outside of Israel, his people in the Old Testament. He says, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who's not my loved one. It was always God's plan, says Paul, to gather in non-Jews, Gentiles. And it was always God's plan that, sadly, a large proportion of Jews would reject the Lord Jesus. That's what the quotes from Isaiah say in verse 27 to 29. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. See, God's word hasn't failed. Now, he is good and he's in control. God isn't unjust. Everyone deserves his righteous anger. But he chooses to set his mercy and his compassion on some people and not others. Well, how can he still blame us? Well, he is the creator and we are the creature. Yet we exercise real decisions, real wills. But God works his will through our will. And the result is that he displays his love, his mercy and compassion, that is his glory, by choosing to save some and by leaving others who will face his righteous anger forever, who will receive his punishment. That has always been the plan. And that is great news. Let let me give you three brief things as to why that's great news. Here's the first one. That if you accept... God is in control and that he is good, you have total security in life. You see, in the end, if it's about you being in control, then there can come a point where actually you can reject God. You can decide to walk away from him. Maybe you can even look into the future of your life and you you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know whether God's going to be for you because, well, he's not in control. How can you trust any of his promises? In fact, if God is in control, you might as well stop praying because he can't change anything. But if he is in control, you have total security. You have a loving Heavenly Father who you can call upon who's working out his purposes in your life for your good. Here's the second thing. That that if God is good and he's in control, that means we can share the good news of Jesus with anyone and with everyone. 
Because remember where Paul started? He's desperate for his, his Jewish friends, family, the, the nation of Israel to come to Christ. Why would he keep on going with them? Well, because God is good, is in control, and he has mercy on who is mercy and compassion on who is compassion. It's not about human desire or effort. It's about God's work through his love. And so we can share Jesus with anyone and everyone because God can save anyone and everyone. That gives us great confidence, doesn't it? And lastly, if God is good and God is in control, if, if you're not a yet a Christian, then, then you need to come to him. You need to come to him. Because the way that the Bible says that you know that you're one of God's chosen people is that you turn to Jesus. You admit that you're a rebel against him who deserves his righteous anger, and you accept that he died for you. Uh, look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. This is what Paul does, having understood that God's good and in control. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. You see, when you know God is good and in control, it doesn't mean that you stop telling people about Jesus. That you do it more. And if you're not yet a Christian, you come to Jesus because there is a good God who runs this world. And he promises that when you come to him, you will know him as merciful and compassionate. And you will experience his love, not just now, but you'll experience it forever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you are our creator. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see your goodness and your love most fully revealed. We see that you're in control as you order history that he might go to the cross. And we see that you are the God of mercy and compassion, as in love he lays down his life for us. Please help us to trust you. Please help us to rejoice that you are sovereign and that you are gracious uh, today and forevermore. Amen.